Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, New York Rangers fans, and welcome to episode 50 of the new Ice City Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and I am so happy. I cannot believe we have gotten to episode number 50. Took us a little over a year to do it, but we got here, and it's been quite the ride. I hope you guys have enjoyed it as much as I have, and I I definitely want to start with this. I've mentioned this quite a few times, I think, at the end of shows, but I think it's appropriate to begin this show, our 50th overall episode, by thanking you, the fans, the followers, the listeners, who have been very loyal to this show from the very beginning. I've mentioned before that when we first decided to launch this, it was an idea that had been brewing in my mind really since I took on the beat three seasons ago, but then during the pandemic, finally had a little downtime, some time to regroup some time to explore new ideas, some time to run this through all the proper channels that it needed to run through in order to make it happen. We finally did. And from the beginning, it it popped in a way that we were really excited about. We, quite frankly, started with more listeners than we thought. We thought it would be more of a slow buildup. But what's been even greater for me since then is that while we started with a lot of you listening and we were really excited about that, the audience has continued to grow, and that's been really encouraging as well. And and I owe it to all of you for being so loyal to the show, for sending in your questions every week, for being so engaged. A lot of our great guests, too. I definitely have to thank them. And we have another really good guest today, probably one of the best guests we've had when you especially think about the timeliness of it. Our guest this week is Kevin Lowe, a six-time NHL champion defenseman, including 1994 with the Rangers, so getting to a lot of really cool stories with Kevin about a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff from that 94 team and other teams. He was on the Rangers for four years, so other teams during his time there, including Mark Messier and Brian Leach and Mike Richter and all these guys that he played with. And it's especially timely because Kevin was just inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, made his speech, I want to say about 10 days, maybe two weeks ago, something like that. So Kevin, really nice guy, very gracious with his time. And uh, I was really thrilled to be able to get him on the show for this 50th episode. But at the end of the day, as much as I love the guests, I love you guys more. You guys are what makes your show happen. I wouldn't be able to do it if it weren't for you guys listening. And for me, this is different from the day-to-day stuff that I do. I love all of the writing. I love all the interactions with the team and the travel and all that stuff. But this is to me, probably the best way for me to communicate directly with you guys and give you guys a little more of my opinion, a a little more nuance, and really talk through some of the issues and some of the things that go on around this team in more of a conversational tone. Obviously, a lot of my articles, as you guys read, especially my columns, are very conversational, and I try to share a lot of insight beyond just the who, what, why, when, where. I definitely try to dive deeper and provide a little more insight, I should say, and and have my own unique voice. But this is another way for me to have my voice. This is my actual voice. This is me talking directly to you guys. I love it. I hope you guys love it. And I want to start by thanking you guys for, for, for all the support in the last 50 episodes. And there will be many more episodes to come. We don't have any plans of slowing down anytime soon. So with that, let's get into the latest with the Rangers. They've only played... Two games since our last episode. This episode will be coming out on Wednesday instead of the usual Thursday because, as you guys know, Thursday is Thanksgiving. The Rangers also have a late game on Wednesday night, so it would have been really hard to kind of record that on the fly. I'll be making my first trip out to the new UBS arena on Long Island. We'll get to that in just a minute. But let's start with what's happened with the Rangers in the last couple games started with a 2-1 loss to the Maple Leafs in Toronto on Thursday, although we talked last show about how 
I felt that that was going to be a pretty good gauge for them as far as all the things that they tried to improve on during that downtime when they had a handful of days off in between games after a crazy, grueling schedule to begin the season. I think that even though the Rangers lost that game, I thought they played better than we saw the first time they were in Toronto when Igor Shesterkin stood on his head and pretty much single-handedly won that game. The Rangers did not ask for Igor to do nearly as much as he had to do in the previous game. The The first goal he gave up on a long shot, he didn't have a good look at it. I, I don't know if I would blame him directly for that. He was obviously screened, but that wasn't necessarily a high danger chance or anything like that. I thought the Rangers did a really good job defensively against a high-powered Maple Leafs team, and that I thought was encouraging. Obviously, you'd like to see them score a little bit more than the one goal that they got, but I think overall, we're seeing fewer mistakes. We're seeing better puck management. We're seeing less turnovers. We're seeing better defensive zone coverage. All of that stuff has been much better for the Rangers since they had that refresh period where they got to practice for three days in a row. And so as much as you hate to lose that game, the record is still in a very good place. And I think that there were things to be encouraged about. It wasn't their best game. I mean, offensively, they obviously did not generate nearly enough, but Jack Campbell, The goalie for the Maple Leafs has been one of the best in the league so far. He's right up there with Igor as far as best goalies in the league in the early portion of the season. But obviously, you'd like to see them score more than one goal. I just thought that they looked like they had no possession on their heels the whole time in that first game against Toronto, and that was certainly not the case in the second game. So a few positives to take out of there for sure, and then you move on to Sunday where they hosted the Buffalo Sabres. And let's be real, Buffalo is not a a very good team. That game, very sloppy, especially in the second period, went through, I think, an 82-second period where they scored twice, but they also let Buffalo score twice. We're going to get into the goalie stuff in a minute. One of your Twitter questions is about that. So I'm going to save my Georgiev takes for the final segment of the show. But What we saw at the end of that game in the third period was an extremely well-played period from the Rangers. They absolutely put their thumb down on the Sabres, only allowed four shots on goal in the final period. And even though they didn't score until there were less than a second left, 0.4 seconds left in the game, they did dominate that period. They had possession the whole time. They had a lot of really quality chances. And then finally, Just as the buzzer is about to ring, I'm getting ready for overtime. For me, when I'm sitting in the press box and have my running story going and I'm trying to furiously take notes and have a bunch of things ready to go for as soon as the game ends, all of a sudden, Lindgren gets that winning goal and I have to quickly regroup and retype and and then run down to the the press conference room and all that. So (laughs) crazy ending for sure for a reporter, but crazy ending, especially if you're a fan. And I know I can tell you guys this for sure, from talking to players after the game and just knowing how they feel about Ryan Lindgren in the organization and in the locker room. Everybody that we spoke to was thrilled for him to get a moment like that. This is a guy that came into that night with only three career NHL goals. We know how valuable he is for the Rangers as the Robin to Adam Fox's Batman. We know how good he is defensively, how sturdy he is, how tough he is for a a physical guy who's not the biggest guy in the league, but plays like he's much bigger than he actually is and blocks shots and is bleeding all the time and just sacrifices himself in all those different ways for the team. That was a moment that I think all the guys in the locker room felt great about, because if they're, if you were to ask them to make a short list of the guys who they'd like to see rewarded, who they feel like probably don't get enough attention and deserve it, Lindgren will be right near the top of that. So really cool moment for Ryan Lindgren. Uh, you guys have heard him on the podcast before. Really humble guy, down-to-earth guy, but but all, a very key player for the Rangers, no doubt about it. So the team was thrilled for him in, in that sense. And then we talked about in Toronto where the Rangers were good defensively, not so good offensively. The Buffalo game was sort of the opposite, where they definitely gave up a few too many grade-A chances, but they only gave up, I think, 20 or so shots on goal. So overall, the defense was... Mostly good, just a few glaring mistakes, including Jared Tenorti basically handing the puck to a guy on the Sabres in the slot and and giving them a a really easy scoring chance in that second period, which again was very sloppy on both teams' parts. But they did pick it up offensively. The offense definitely picked up the defense in that win over the Sabres, and they end up getting five goals and another win. So here they sit, 11-4-3. 
as they head to Long Island to play the Islanders for the first time this season. Now, the Islanders are depleted right now. They have, it seems like every day there's more guys going on the COVID list for them. There were rumblings that maybe this game was in jeopardy of being postponed because the Islanders are playing so shorthanded right now. I believe Zidane Ochara also was added to the COVID list today on Tuesday. So the Islanders are certainly not at full strength, but everything I'm hearing so far is that they're proceeding with the game. The Rangers are planning to have a morning skate out there, so I'm actually going to drive out to Long Island early, be there for the skate, pretty much spend the whole day out there, hopefully beat some of the traffic. I'm definitely not thrilled about having to go over the either Whitestone or Throg's Neck and get to Long Island the day before Thanksgiving, but we will make it work one way or another. And it doesn't maybe have quite the pizzazz or the anticipation that it might have if the Islanders were at full strength, because we all know that as much as people talked about the Tom Wilson incident at the end of the season, that the way the Rangers were were pushed around by the Islanders, I think probably had even more of an influence on the changes that happened after that. So I think at some point, the Rangers are going to want to see how they fare against a big, heavy, physical, four-checking team like the Islanders when, when they have all their guys. So we might not get that on Wednesday, but it'll still be a fun night. I'm really curious to see the arena. I've heard awesome things about it. I've heard that it's it's a really, really top-notch place to, to watch a game. So going to definitely check that out on Wednesday. And then Thursday's Thanksgiving, get some time with the family then. Friday, I got to wake up early. I'm trying to get on the road, I think, about 7 a.m. to drive up to Boston because the Rangers will be playing a one o'clock game in Boston on Friday against the Bruins. So the schedule continues to be unrelenting. Luckily get the one day for the holiday where they're not playing. But other than that, I'm going to be on the move quite a bit in the next few days. I do hope that all of you get a chance to, to enjoy your Thanksgivings and hopefully not do as much driving as I'm going to have to do. But the Rangers, as they look ahead to these next two games are making a few minor tweaks And the most notable thing, the last thing that I want to touch on before we get to our interview with Kevin Lowe is really what the topic of conversation was today at Tuesday's practice, and that was Dryden Hunt, a guy that when he signed a two-year deal for about $1.5 million, most of us figured, okay, this is a depth signing. Maybe he'll crack the fourth line, could be a healthy scratch, could end up in Hartford. Well, now this guy is going to start against the Islanders on the Rangers' top line, which is really hard to believe. Obviously, that speaks to the, I guess a lot of people call it lack of depth that the Rangers have at forward and the Sammy Blay injury and Vitaly Kratsov being in Russia and all those things that we've talked about a few times already this season. But I do think that the Hunt situation is another instance of Gerard Gallant rewarding a guy that is playing the way that he wants him to play, that is working hard, that is very clearly earning the respect of his teammates. Ryan Stroh made that very clear how much of an impression Hunt has made on this locker room so far just with his grittiness and his hustle and his all-out style of play. And listen, we'll see how it works. Obviously, this does not feel like a long-term solution. This does not feel like something that the Rangers can plan on doing for the rest of the season entirely or multiple seasons or whatever. Dryden Hunt, I do not think profiles as a top-line type player. But that's the direction the Rangers are going to go for now. Barclay Gaudreau is moving down to the fourth line, which all of a sudden a fourth line with Gaudreau, Rooney, and Reeves, that looks pretty formidable as far as fourth lines go. And Hunt, we'll see what happens. I think that there were some encouraging signs. If you look at the numbers, and it's a very small sample size, but if you look at the numbers, They didn't give up any scoring chances in their limited time together, meaning Kreider, Zabanajad, and Hunt. And their puck possession numbers are pretty good. So let's see if they can carry that a little bit. I think Gallant, his curiosity has been sparked, and and he wants to see what happens. He said that he liked what he saw after he made the change to move Hunt up in the previous game against the Sabres. So that, definitely an interesting bit of news. But ultimately, the Rangers are going to have to figure out what the plan is going to be at right wing on that Kreider Zibanejad line, because right now they've tried Lafreniere. They've tried Barclay Gaudreau. They tried Blay who's out. Now they're trying hunt. Like at some point you got to figure it out. And and none of the things they've tried so far really feel like long-term solutions, except maybe 
Lafreniere, whether it's him playing on the right or Kreider playing on the right, the only issue there, as we've addressed in the past, is which one of those guys is more comfortable switching to his off wing. And I think right now the Rangers clearly don't want to force one of them to do it. I, I don't think they're totally comfortable with that at this point. So that that's an ongoing issue. But for now, kind of a nice story to see a guy like Hunt, who was very much an afterthought when he was signed, getting this type of unexpected opportunity. But it's funny. I tweeted this earlier today. We keep talking about the Zabanajad line as the top line. And I get it. He's the team's best center. So whoever plays with him should be the top line. But to me, there's no doubt about it right now. The, the top line for this team is Panarin, Strom, and Kako. That has been their best line. It's been on fire in the last four games. Kako in particular got this four-game point streak going on right now. Three goals in that span. Five points in total. He really looks like he's finding it. We, we've talked a lot about year three. When are we going to see the breakout? Well, this could be the beginning of it. It could always revert back. Of course, I'm not guaranteeing anything. But I think that he has looked incredibly strong on the puck. I think that he has been a more forceful presence on the forecheck defensively. And I think that there just seems to be this air of confidence about him right now. Shots that he was maybe missing the net on before or not even taking, he's taking and he's putting in the back of the net. And and that's something we talked about with Ryan Strom a bunch today, that, that Kako really seems to be finding his stride. And something interesting that Strom said was, we've always seen that this guy, when he has time and space, is one of the best in the world. But what he needed to learn was how to operate when he doesn't have that time and space. And maybe not necessarily trying to go through guys one-on-one, but learning to pass to Panarin, pass to Strom, cycle back around, work his way toward the net. And Kako is doing those things very effectively right now. And that line, to me, has absolutely been the Rangers' best line. I think I might just start calling it the top line from now on because as as one person, I'll note this as kind of a final thing here. I got a text from somebody who works in the league who who said to me, it's kind of funny that everybody always calls the, the Zabanajad line the Rangers' top line. He said, as far as opposing teams are concerned, when they're scouting and prepping to play the Rangers, they always look at the line that's most dangerous, the line that they're most concerned about stopping as any line that has Artemi Panarin on it. So little nugget for you guys there as we wrap this segment up. And with that, We're going to kick it to our interview with Kevin Lowe. Really enjoyed this one. And then I'll be back after the interview to answer some of your Twitter questions. And now let's welcome into the show a very special guest, a man who was just inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's a six-time champion defenseman, including 1994 with the New York Rangers. That would be Kevin Lowe. So, Kevin, First of all, congratulations so much on the Hall of Fame induction. And secondly, how are you doing? I'm sure it's been a, a crazy few weeks for you. Yeah, it sure has. Uh, uh, first of all, it's uh, I'm happy to be on the show. And um, it's been uh, a couple of weeks of, uh, let's put it this way, more, uh, more excitement than I've been used to since in my retired life. Um, you know, I had the good fortune of having my jersey retired on uh, – November 5th uh, here in Edmonton when the Rangers were visiting. And uh, then, of course, the Hall of Fame, as you mentioned. So uh, it's been fantastic. I mean, we've we've had so many good, um, you know, so many great memories with that 80s team. And uh, we, we tend to celebrate it from time to time, you know, the 25th anniversary. And then when the NHL uh, voted uh, or the fans voted for the, you know, the uh, greatest team of all time uh, for the 100-year anniversary, we got to celebrate that. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm telling all the guys now, I think this is it. I think we're done celebrating for a while. And uh, and uh, uh, hopefully the next celebration will be a, a cup for the present day Oilers uh, sometime soon. Well, and, and you guys will have some other anniversaries coming up as well. But let, let's start with the Hall of Fame stuff. What was that whole weekend like? Were, were you nervous about the speech? How did everything go? Well, I think it went okay. Um, I had, we had lots of time to prepare because we were the class of 2020. So we actually, uh, um, June of 20, uh, uh, we're voted in. And so essentially we've been that class until last week in Toronto. So we've had the luxury of lots of time to prepare, but, uh, it, it was great fun. I mean, the best part of it is hearing from, even if I had, you know, had a bunch of friends and family come in, uh, a bunch of the Oilers hall of famers 
uh, were in attendance and uh, that was great to see them. But we see each other, you know, fairly often over the course of a year. Uh, but to hear from guys like uh, Brian Leach, for instance, or Jeff Bukaboom, uh, you know, guys that played for the Rangers, uh, Neil Smith, a former general manager, to, you know, get messages and calls from people like that is, uh, uh, well, it's fantastic. You just, you know, you, feel, you, re- you remember how fortunate, I guess, we were to be able to win another cup. And, uh, you know, it's hard. It's uh, it's heartfelt when you when you get those calls. Yeah, for sure. So, so you mentioned some of the Rangers guys. I, I want to get into that. But let's let's talk about a little Oilers stuff first. You spent 13 seasons there, five cups with the Oilers, which is pretty amazing when you when you think about it. I was reading this the other day. You scored the first ever goal in the history of the franchise. And it was actually Wayne Gretzky's first NHL assist. Is That's all accurate. That's true. Yes, that's correct. Yes, yeah, that's, and, that's sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, and I and I have that. I I had that puck, of course. When you score your first goal, uh, the team you know gets you the puck, and and uh, so it was sitting in storage somewhere, and I didn't know where it was. And the longer we went along here, I mean, besides it being historic for the Oilers, and of course my first goal, it's also as you mentioned Wayne Gretzky's first point. So. Uh, that puck has some sentimental value and maybe monetary value. So uh, I did find it recently. It's actually at the Hall of Fame in, in Toronto, the Hockey Hall of Fame right now. And I'm going to leave it there for a while. Um, Wayne jokingly for a lot of years said he tipped it, but uh, he confessed recently that he didn't tip. Uh, he probably said that because he wanted to make you feel good for all the Hall of Fame stuff and, and finally give that <laughs> one to you. That, that, yeah. that, that's pretty neat. So, when you think back on all those runs in the eighties with Edmonton, obviously five cups, I'm sure there's a lot of different memories, but what are maybe some of the first things that pop into your mind? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, when you're a young person becoming a professional hockey player, I mean, your goal is just to play in the league, you know, to play some games and to become a regular. And as that started to evolve with us, we were quite young. Um, You know, we all started in 1979. I shouldn't say all, but, uh, Wayne Gretzky was on the team, Mark Messier, Glenn Anderson, uh, myself. And then the following year, Paul Coffey came in and Yari Curry. And then the year after that, Grant Fuhr, Essa Ticken. And so, so the foundation of the Oilers was built in three draft years. And uh, then it didn't take us too long. Of course, Wayne was having recognized success. He won the scoring championship his first year. And, uh, you know, he was he was already uh, all world at a young age. But uh, we you know, we all started to gain notoriety as we started to win more. We you know, we we vaulted up to second overall in the league in uh, in our third season, uh, had a disappointing loss to the Los Angeles Kings in the playoffs. And really, from that point on, we were on a trajectory to to win a cup. You know, we played the Islanders in 83 and got swept and had a lot of learning lessons there. And and so. You know, in hindsight, it all happened relatively quick. You know, from from the start of the franchise to winning the first championship was five years, and then we won four and five years, and then five and seven years. So, um, but you know, it, it, a lot of talent, obviously. But I said that in my Hall of Fame speech. You know, the biggest misconception about the '80s Oilers was yes, there was an abundance of talent. I mean, that was indisputable. But really, the, the fact that we could win five and seven years had to do with the, the discipline of the players and the desire of the players and a great coaching staff for us to be able to do that for so long. And you mentioned that the foundation was built really across three drafts. So you had guys that were all similar age and you all came up around the same time. I'm sure that that sense of continuity and that sense of growing together really aided as you guys moved through it and, and as you said, elevated to one of the top teams in the league very quickly in retrospect. Yeah, no, no question. I mean, we're all all similar in age. Um, um, you know, we're all within two years of one another. I, of that group, I would have been the oldest. Uh, born in '59, um, uh, Mark Messi and Wayne Gretzky were born in '61. Anderson was born in '60. Coffee was born in '61. So all the same age, really, just having fun together. We were playing pro hockey, and and although we took it seriously, we're, you know, we were having a blast. <laughs> Um, you know, in, in those, even in those days, making decent money, being a professional athlete, like life, you know, if, if you, you're looking for that lane, it, it doesn't get any better than that. And then, uh, you know, Glenn Sather was a, was a huge part of our success as well. I mean, he really got us believing at a young age that we could win, we could be successful. 
Uh, and I, you know, the other thing I said in my Hall of Fame speech, you know, Wayne allowed us to grow into it. You know, all the attention was on him. Uh, he was already becoming the best player in the league and, and, you know, having him for us to essentially ride on his coattails for a bunch of years until we established ourselves and, and the belief factor was in the whole group that, uh, you know, we were able to go on and win championships, but, uh, yeah, the best part of it was growing up together and, you know, learning from our mistakes together and then, you know, collectively, uh, winning together. And, and the other part of our success too, really was when you have two superstars, you know, Wayne uh, was right from the get go. Mark Messi took a little bit of a time, but when he started establishing himself as a, as a superstar in the league, both those guys were so unselfish uh, relative to their own success. And we're always more interested in the team's success and other guys' success. So that, that was a big part, I think, of, of you know, you don't become a, a, a dynasty organization, you know, just because there's stars. There's got to be a lot, lot, lot of other elements. And, and their, uh, you know, selfless uh, view on things uh, was, was pretty important as well. Well, you led us right into a guy that I'm sure Rangers fans would love to hear about, and that's Mark Messier. You guys played together for so many years. You grew up together in a lot of ways. When you think about him, what kind of memories come flooding back to you when his name comes up? Well, for me, they're personal because I, you know, I knew Mark personally. I knew his family personally from the time I came to Edmonton. You know, our very first Christmas, uh, I didn't want to go. I'm from Eastern Canada, the Montreal area. It was too far to go home for Christmas. The first Christmas I missed with my family, you know, went over to the Messiers and was, you know, was adopted as a, as a son, you know, initially and had great relationships. So for me, when I think, when you say Mark Messi, it's just really family, he and his family, but um, you know, the going to New York and being part of that uh, really, I tell a lot of people as well. I mean, it's always great to win more cups, but I, I, you know, for me personally, it was just so gratifying to win in New York for, for Mark's sake, because, you know, we knew how good he was or is uh, or, 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 you know, was at the time. And uh, he deserved all the recognition that he did get because, I mean, he's an unbelievable hockey player. And again, was willing to, you know, park personal accomplishments for team accomplishments in how he played his game. And, uh, you know, I saw it for, for over a decade in Edmonton. And then, uh, you know, to win on Broadway really is, is a whole nother level up. And, and uh, that really solidified him. You know, you hear people talking about arguably the greatest leader in professional sports history. And uh, I don't doubt that at all. So, um, yeah, just a lot of great memories. And, and our friendship, you know, of course, hasn't ended. We still, we get on the phone and we, we're like kids again when we, when we talk about uh, life in general and uh, yeah, just really fortunate to have, have come into his life. So Messier's traded to the Rangers in 91. You spend that a season following that as captain in Edmonton, but then you join him a year later, 92. Do you remember what anything in particular about that trade, how you found out what your initial reaction was? Yeah, it was a it was a complicated affair because the, I mean this the, the system of free agency is completely different now. In those days, in 1992, I was I had played 13 years for the Oilers. I was an unrestricted free agent, so my contract was up. But in those days, the team that had your rights still had first right of refusal, and uh, I don't want to say there was collusion, but uh, um, you know it was hard to sign as a free agent anywhere, and and. So I just, uh, you know, Glenn say there was a GM here. I said, you know, Glenn, it's time to go. Uh, everybody from those dynasty teams are gone. Um, you know, the, the Rangers had verbally tendered me a contract, but they didn't want to ink it on paper uh, for a whole plethora of reasons. So I knew that they had strong interests. I knew that they wanted me to come there. Of course, I knew that Mark was there. I was also given the opportunity. So when it came to realization that Glenn say there was going to trade me, he had two two deals for me. He came to me, he said, okay, I know you want to go, so I have two trades for you. I have one to Montreal and one in New York, and you choose. And um, I chose New York, of course, because Mark was there and, and Jeff Bukaboom and Adam Graves and some guys I knew, other guys I knew. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it happened that Montreal won the cup that year, so I might have made the, the wrong choice initially, <laughs> but certainly made the right choice the next year. 
Did you grow up as a Habs fan? I'm sure that must, if you did, it must have been tempting to go there. Uh, it was, yeah. I did grow up, you know, an hour out of Montreal. And I mean, it's hard not to be, a, well, either you love the, the Habs or you hated the Habs, you know, and mostly the, the people that hated them were Toronto Maple Leaf fans growing up in, in, in uh, you know, in Canada in the, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, particularly when there was only six teams and they seemed to win all the time. But no, the allure to be with Mark again in, in New York City, I uh, uh, always loved visiting there. And, and, you know, just the whole idea of actually living and playing there was, uh, you know, too hard to pass up. You, you touched on this a little bit, but what did you observe in your time in New York that were the major differences between what it was like to play and win in Edmonton versus what it was like to play and win in New York? Yeah, I think, um, uh, well, you know, the first game I played on, on the island against the Islanders with the Rangers, um, I didn't know what the fans were chanting, you know, and then and, and finally uh, could hear this chant all the time. It was 1940, 1940. I had to ask the guys, what are they talking about? I didn't realize that had it been since 1940 that the Rangers had won the cup. Yeah. So yeah. I, didn't know, I, I didn't know my Ranger history. Uh, uh, but in terms of winning, you know, given the – the length of time, you know, I'll, I'll never forget on that parade. I saw uh, there was a it was a boy and a and a man and, a, and an older gentleman together, and it turns out it was a it was a grandson, a, a father, and a, and a grandfather. And the sign said, you know, I thank you, my father thanks you, my grandfather thanks you, Rangers for for bringing the cup. You know, sort of said it all. Um, you know, I don't know. They 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 put the parade at a million plus people. Uh, the, uh, you know, the ticker tape parade, all those things. Uh, I mean, when I first got there, I could walk around New York and, you know, know what, I mean, that was kind of the cool thing for me because Edmonton being a smaller city, my face was very recognized. I could walk away, you know, walk around Manhattan and virtually be unknown. And then, you know, interestingly, after we won the cup, that completely changed. It's not like I was uh, coming in as Derek Jeter or anything, but, you know, we were more recognized uh, and, uh, you know, that, that was a lot of fun, but, uh, you know, the, the Rangers had a great history. I saw the play in the seventies when they had some good teams. I remember that run in 79 with the, with the young Rangers and John Davidson and Nets. And it, it just seemed that, you know, going there, there was some good pieces The Rangers had been a good team. It looked like they just needed a few, you know, extra pieces of help out. I think the Oilers seven, you know, there were seven of us that came from Edmonton and I mentioned Graves and Bookaboom. And then there was. Craig McTavish and Essa Tickenen and Glenn Anderson came and uh, Mike Hudson had played, you know, not a ton for the orders, but was also in New York at the time. I like to think that our contribution, uh, you know, made a difference. Did you guys feel that pressure from the city that it had been 54 years and that they were longing for that championship? Oh, without a doubt, you know, and, and uh, I remember, um, uh, I think it was Mike Keenan that said it, uh, you know, have to exercise the demons, <laughs> whatever that meant. But, uh, you know, and then if you recall that run, I mean, we had game seven, you know, against the devils and we, we kept getting scored on the last minute of the game. And, you know, just, it seemed to add more and more drama. And of course the Canucks took us to seven. Uh, um, so it, it, you know, when, when, you know, the final buzzer went and it was clear that the Rangers were going to win the cup, it was, I, I was, hard to believe that it would be so amazing, you know, so crazy. I, you know, for me, the winning the first cup will always be the most exciting because that's what you remember as a kid hoping someday to win, win the Stanley cup. But I'd have to say that, you know, which was my sixth, but the one in New York was certainly the right up there in terms of the most exciting. So when you, when you got to New York, what were your impressions of the, the group that they had? And then what did you sort of see as your role and what you could bring to the table for the team? Well, that, that I got there midway through that season. We actually did make the playoffs. Um, and uh, there's, there seemed to be, there was some inner turmoil going on there. There have been issues, um, you know, that unbeknownst to me. So it, it was a calamity of, I mean, it's, well, it's the first time I'd missed the playoffs in my, my playing career. I, that's the only one time I'd missed. And I'm not taking responsibility for that because I only got <laughs> halfway through. But uh, it just seemed the team was out of sync and uh, didn't seem to be a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, it wasn't as close a team. Now, for me coming in as an older guy, it, it always takes a while to sort of 
you know, figure out what your place is. And it wasn't until the next season, Mike Keenan came in, you know, started fresh. Uh, we went over to Europe, uh, over to London, actually London, England, played a couple of exhibition games and, and, uh, you know, right from the get go, uh, Mike Keenan put me with Sergei Zuboff. Uh, Sergei was a young, you know, young, um, just starting defenseman. And I, obviously I was thinking it was 34, 35 years old. So clearly I saw that as a, as an opportunity for me to help mentor him a little bit. Uh, and of course he was a star in the making unbeknownst to everyone at the time, but I quickly figured out he's going to get a lot of ice time. So if I can play with him, I'm going to get a lot of ice time. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but really, you know, Mark was the leader of the team and, you know, my, in our days in, in Edmonton, the, the, our leadership, um, our leadership uh, model worked because uh, you know, when it came time for Mark, if, you know, if he'd spoken too much or in his mind or, you know, was having one of those games where he didn't speak. That's when usually I would take my cue. You know, Brian Leach was already a leader in the making. There was a lot of leaders on that team. You know, Jay Wells was a veteran guy. He was there for a while. So, but I think when they, you know, when I came in, they, they sort of thought, okay, these guys have won. We're just going to, we're going to sit back and listen here and see what they have to say from time to time in the dressing room. And, you know, we, we, uh, we never overspoke. We weren't raw, raw types of guys. We're really try to say the right thing at the right time to make a difference. And, um, you know, um, so it, it worked well. I think Mark appreciated having me there. Uh, but again, as a leader, you have to be performing on the ice. And, uh, you know, it took me a while to sort of find my place on the team to really be able to start doing my thing in the dressing room. You mentioned playing with Zubov, who, interestingly, you know, Rangers fans, I think when they think of the history of defensemen for the team, they always think of Brian Leach first. And for, for good reason, you look at the top two pairs from that 94 season. Leach played with Bukaboom. You played with Zubov. And Zubov actually led the team in scoring that year, 89 points. So those top two pairs look pretty potent. Yeah, I mean, Zubov, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, he uh, they ended up moving him because he, you know, was they're retiring his jersey in Dallas in, in January. And, it you know, Things like that happened, but but my time there, he was a big part of that team. I mean, the power play with him and Brian Leach together on the point was absolutely lethal. Um, I I um, I really enjoyed playing with him because um, um, you know he was doing things that players in the league weren't doing at that point. Uh, like for instance, we'd be killing a penalty, and you know, generally if you're a defenseman, you wire it off the boards or wire it down the ice and. And if he saw the out was me standing in front of an Ed, he'd pass it to me. And, and so, you know, our penalty killing was as a whole that year was incredible, but he, he was a really creative guy. Um, I guess he was a little misunderstood initially, but uh, I really enjoyed my time with him. And, and yeah, you mentioned that he won. Uh, he was top scorer on the team. I think he tied with Mess that year because Mess miss, missed a bunch of games, but there's only two defensemen in the history of the game that won, won the scoring title or led their team in scoring in the regular season and won a Stanley Cup in the same year. That's Bob Yor and Sergei Zubov. So that says a lot. That's pretty, that's pretty good company to keep. <laughs> my, my, my last Re Rangers question for you. D you touched on some of this stuff, and, and I'm sure there's so many memories that come flooding back, but when you think about that cup run, is there anything, that, game, moment, behind the scenes, anything that, that comes to your mind first and foremost? I, I wonder often the Messier guarantee got played up so much in the media, but was that something that really penetrated the locker room a lot? Or, or was there anything else about that run that when you think about it, it, it is a moment that, that remains vivid in your memory? Well, that's one for sure. Uh, you know, I remember we went to Rangers practice facility was in Rye, Rye Playland at the time. And, and uh, um, we rode to uh, rode to practice together. Often uh, Brian Leach, uh, Mike Richter um, and uh, Mark and I, and um, I remember coming out of the rink and he said, well, I might've done it this time. And he, and he said what he had said and, and never really thought much of it. You know, we were, we were, uh, uh, we were very humble at the time. Uh, you know, we knew we had our hands full with the devils they're a good team. And uh, again, not till saw the papers the next day where it really became reality. Oh my goodness. Uh, this is going to be interesting and, and, you know, feeling for him, 
uh, really. I mean, at the end of the day, it was his quote, and he deserves all the accolades. Um, so that was that was a pretty pretty bizarre time. Um, I don't know. I think think throughout the year we had such a, you know, we essentially led the league from start to finish, and um, and really the Devils seemed to be the, the toughest were, were going to be our toughest opponent. We knew that they, they they had had a good rivalry already built up before I got there, and uh, to to get through them the way it happened it's just it was really surreal. You know, Mark calling it and for, for him to score the hat trick. Uh, that that one of that particular year would be you know the thing that jumps out the most. Last thing I want to ask you before I let you go, and I, I really appreciate the time. In, in your current role as as vice chairman of the Oilers, I have to ask about this guy just because they, every time you pull up NHL highlights anywhere, he's always showing up. Connor McDavid. I, I definitely I don't want to compare him to Gretzky, but obviously you are in a unique position because you've been around two guys who were the best players of their generation. So. When you look at McDavid, and this is a sore subject for Rangers fans right now because of the way that he weaved through four defense or four defenders uh, the last time they played and scored that goal to tie the game. Uh, but McDavid, I mean, I don't know how often you, you get to be around him, but I know you obviously watch him and you're involved with the Oilers still. So what is so special about this guy in your mind when you watch him play? Yeah, you know, and the, the Rangers defenseman shouldn't feel too bad because he's done it to a lot of defensemen. Yeah, he did it again the, the other night, yeah. <laughs> in the few years that he's been in the league. Um, well, you asked the question, what are the comparisons? I would say, I mean, the, the immediate comparison is that the, 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 the people that want to go see the team play because of Connor McDavid was very similar when Wayne first came in the league. They just, you know, it's, it's one thing for a player to come in and become a star. And, uh, but to get to that level where you're almost guaranteed night, night after night, if you go watch him play, you're going to see something, you know, out of body, uh, worldly, uh, versus, you know, there's a lot of great players that are just great players, but they don't do anything to pull you out of your seat. Uh, so that, that's the comparison. Um, you know, uh, they're both came in at a young age and, and, you know, attacked the scoring title right away, winning awards. You know, the next step for Connor obviously is to try to, you know, bring the team to a championship. And that was really important to Wayne in his early days. Uh, you know, he had won scoring titles. Uh, uh, he set the record for points. He scored 92 goals in, in one season. That, you know, hard to believe that that's ever going to be broken. But, you know, none of that really mattered to him. It was, it was good. He was excited about it. But he knew he would never have his place in history unless he won championships. And he was fixated on that. And I, I get the sense that, you know, watching Connor now and listening to him talk, that that's becoming a reality for him. Uh, now, so uh, that's, that's good news for Oilers fans. But uh, um, he 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 certainly is worth the price of admission. Very similar to Wayne in in, in Wayne's day, his days with the Oilers. He really he really is a joy to watch. It's it's so he's he's obviously probably my favorite player and a lot of favorite player for people around the league to to watch on a nightly basis right now. Because as you said, something special could happen on any given night. But. Kevin, I, I want to thank you so much for the time. Congratulations on the well-deserved induction into the Hall of Fame. I know Rangers fans were thrilled for you. I know that your place on that cup team will be etched in their minds forever, so I'm sure they're going to love hearing from you. And again, thank you so much for the time. Oh, always a pleasure. I really enjoyed my days in New York and still consider myself part Ranger. That's good. I'm sure they're glad to hear that. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. And we're back. Thanks again to Kevin for taking the time to come on the show and talk to us from Edmonton. I know he's still involved with the Oilers. He had just come out of some meeting, but somebody suggested, hey, it would be really cool to talk to him for your 50th episode. So reached out to him a handful of days ago, got back to me right away, incredibly gracious with his time, super nice guy, really appreciate the time. That was the first time we ever had the chance to talk, but we ended up chatting for half hour plus whatever it was and and he was he was really cool to talk to had some great stories I couldn't help but afterwards picturing he talked about going to Rye Playland where the Rangers used to practice the car used to be him Messier Richter and Leach I could only imagine what those conversations were like and I think that's probably a really cool thing for Rangers fans to picture in their head and imagine what might have been going on in that car but again 
Really appreciate Kevin's time. Really cool way to mark our 50th episode. And now we will end the 50th episode as we have the previous 49 episodes. And that is with your Twitter questions and what is on your mind. And these questions were pretty good this week. There was a few topics that, that seemed to bubble to the surface. And so I tried to stick with those and take it from there. The first one comes from Brian Chris Coolo. I hope I'm saying that right, Brian. Chris Coolio, maybe. Coolo or Coolio. Anyway, Brian asks, does the organization really see Tenorti as the best fill-in option for when they want to sit Nils? This has been a topic of conversation for a couple days now because I think everybody was slightly surprised when Nils Lundqvist did not play against the Sabres on Sunday. Jared Tenorti was put in the lineup. Fifth time this season that that's happened out of 18 games. So obviously, Lundqvist has received the majority of the starts. And Gerard Gallant has talked about how much he likes Tenorti. We know Chris Drury likes Tenorti. That's why he went out and got him. And we knew that he was going to pick his spots to use him. What was surprising to me about it was, I figured if he was going to play Tenorti, it was going to be against a bigger, more physical, tougher kind of team that he felt like he wanted more size and grit to play against. I don't know if Buffalo falls into that category. To me, Buffalo, even though they got off to a pretty good start, that they've come back down to earth lately, and on paper, they're probably one of the worst teams in the league. I would have looked at that as an opportunity to play Lundquist, maybe give him a chance to have a good game, build some confidence, maybe get a point or two, whatever it may be. But to me, if you're going to pick a spot not to play him, it's going to be against a team that you feel like his style wouldn't work well against. I don't know if that was the case with Buffalo, especially you know if you think about the wear and tear on Lundquist, which Gallant has brought up as well. Well, the Rangers didn't play the two days prior to that, and they had two days off after that leading into the game against the Islanders. So it was kind of an odd spot in my mind to pick to not play Lundquist. And then what happens? Tenorti has a, a really bad game. That decision obviously came back to bite the Rangers because he has the turnover that leads to the Sabres' first goal in the second period. And he was playing so poorly that Gallant basically sat him on the bench for the final 10 minutes of the game. So overall, not an encouraging night for Tenorti. And it raises questions again about what do the Rangers feel about Niels Lundqvist's development? We know he doesn't have a lot of points. He only has two assists through the 13 games. And the defense, I don't think there's been a lot of moments lately where it's jumped out where he makes a big glaring mistake, which is good. He's sort of at the point where if he has a night where you don't notice him that much, that's not the worst thing. What you, what you don't want is to see big glaring mistakes or, or him being run over or not handling the physicality well or, or not keeping up with his man or something bad happening in the defensive zone. So a quiet night isn't necessarily a bad night for him at this point. But at some point, you want to see strides. You want to see him make plays that make you say, okay, that that's why he's the number one prospect in the organization. That's why they've been so excited about him in the last few years. We haven't really had many moments like that yet. So we're still waiting on it. You guys know how I feel about these young players. You need to have some patience. Not everybody is Connor McDavid, as we've talked about time and time again, as Kevin Lowe just explained to you guys how special a guy like that is. But the question that a lot of people seem to be asking this week is, okay, if you're going to not play Lundqvist, What's the next best option? Here's the thing. The Rangers signed to Nordy for a reason, and I do not see them relinquishing his spot as the seventh defenseman right now. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Number one, we just touched on a little bit how they do want him as an option against some of the more physical, in-your-face kind of teams in the league. Whether it's a good idea to play him in those situations or not, I'm not really going to debate that. I don't believe that he should be in the lineup on most nights based on what I've seen so far, but that's the reason the Rangers got him. The second thing is a seventh defenseman is not going to play very often. He's already only played in five games, and I have a feeling after what we just saw against Buffalo, it's going to be a while before we see him again. So do you really want, whether it be Zach Jones or Braden Schneider or Matthew Robertson, do you really want one of those guys filling that void and, and just basically riding riding with the team on the plane and the bus and here and there, but never actually getting in a game, that doesn't seem the best way to develop a young talent. I believe that all of those other young defensemen are best served 
getting consistent playing time, playing in, in big situations, whether it be power play, penalty kill, late in games, a lot of minutes, they're best served doing that in Hartford. And all of these guys are still incredibly young and still have a lot of areas of their game to iron out. When you're talking about Jones, obviously you're talking about him adjusting to playing defense at this level. When you're talking about Schneider, you're talking about a guy who was only drafted last year and is still young with a lot to learn. He, they're coming along from everything that I've heard, and you guys heard Alex Thomas on the show a couple weeks ago go into all this. He does see them making strides each and every week, but there's no big rush. The Rangers determined that Lundquist was the, the prospect who was the most ready for the NHL, and they're going to give him an extended look. I don't think it's the end of the world for him to get scratched every now and then. I do think that there's something to watching the game from a different perspective, being up in the press box and sort of seeing it all play out and taking a breath, catching your breath that way. I've heard players talk about the value in that. And he's played 13 out of 18 games, so that's a pretty good pace for him. And I think he's he's definitely going to play against the Islanders on Wednesday based on what I saw at Tuesday's practice. So... I don't think the Rangers are necessarily botching his development or anything like that by scratching him every now and then. I just don't know what the alternative is. The one thing that I guess a lot of people would argue is Libor Hayek is sitting on this roster right now. He just got back from his conditioning stint, and they have not put him in a game yet. They have chosen Tenority over him every time in situations where they don't want to play Lundqvist. So my question would be, they didn't want to send him to Hartford. They didn't want to put him on waivers. When, if ever, are they going to roll the dice on putting him in a game? And what, from what we've seen with Tenority, could Hayek be much worse than that? I highly doubt it. So I asked Gallant the question the other day, and he kind of looked at me a little side-eye. It did not seem to me like he had any intention of putting Hayek in a game anytime soon. I think, obviously, the Rangers have been looking into trade opportunities to possibly trade him because he does not clearly have a future as a lineup regular for them. So I don't know. I, I don't think that anything that's happening right now is catastrophic. I don't think that Lundqvist getting scratched every now and then is a big deal. I don't think that Tenorti as the seventh defenseman is that big of a deal. I think it's a little peculiar that they haven't tried Hayek in any game so far, but I also think that we kind of know what Hayek is and I don't really know what playing him is going to accomplish as far as helping the Rangers win on that night. Some people will talk about showcasing him for trade value or that sort of thing. But if he hasn't played well every other time he's gotten an opportunity and last season, he got a lot of opportunities. What makes you think he's going to go in there now and do something that's going to catch the attention of other teams and make them decide they want to give up more than they would have originally for him if they were to trade for him. So I, I think it's definitely something to monitor it's definitely something to talk about, but I, I think as far as I'm concerned right now, the Rangers aren't doing anything terribly wrong as far as the situation goes. Keep the young kids in Hartford. Let them keep growing. Let Lundqvist work out his kinks in the NHL. Scratch him every now and then if you think he needs a breather and if you think that will help him sort of take things in from a new perspective. And Tenorti is what he is. <laughs> There's really not much else to say about that. All right. Let's get to our next question, which comes from Nikki Kirshner, who wrote, is there any shot we see Kincaid get called up soon since Georgie looks less than confident at this point? I know they probably want to save some cap room for a trade, but Kincaid has been on fire in Hartford. Well, Nikki, Kincaid, I'll say this, he started the season on fire for Hartford, but he's kind of come back down to earth a little bit himself in the last few games. Actually, the, the best goalie that for Hartford in the last couple of weeks from what I've been hearing has been Adam Huska. It sounds like he's been playing really well. And if you look right now, his save percentage is, I think, about 20 points higher than Kincaid. Kincaid's been solid. I think he's like like 918 save percentage right now. He's got a, a good record. I, you heard Alex Thomas talk about how he had been really good for them in the beginning of the season. Huska, though, is a guy who maybe you're starting to wonder now, okay, is this guy somebody who could maybe be an option to back up Igor next year because Georgiev's contract is expiring? But getting back to your question about right now, the Georgiev thing is concerning, no doubt about it. The game he played against Buffalo the other night, I was a little surprised to see him start in that situation, although that one I can understand a little bit because 
you want to pick your spots to play him. I talked about this before. You can't just let him rot away for two weeks in between every start and then expect him to be sharp. So I did think that they needed to pick spots strategically to get him a little bit more in a rhythm, but he was not in any rhythm against Buffalo. I think he faced 18 shots and he let four of them in. So not a good game for him at all. His save percentage is down to like 850 right now. And what we've seen is the lack of confidence, the issues that he had last season have really carried into this season. Part of me believes that he's not the kind of goalie who does well coming in sporadically. He's a guy who, when we've seen him play well for the Rangers in the past, he's played frequently. If you go back to that 1920 season when he was solid for the Rangers, he played a lot of games. He didn't have these long stretches where he had to ride the bench. Right now, he's clearly not very sharp, and he did, maybe he just isn't the kind of guy who adapts very well to a backup role. I don't know if I see him as a high-quality starter. I think there's a lot of questions, valid questions right now, about what his role should be on any team moving forward. Certainly, the, the Rangers are not going to start backing off on how much they're playing Igor Shosturkin or anything like that. Shosturkin is clearly the superior option. But Georgiev right now, you do not have a lot of confidence giving him a start. And that's not a good situation for the Rangers because as good as Shosturkin has been, how much can they really play him? Can they play him 80-85% of games? And then even in those 10-15% of the games, how much trust are you going to have that Georgiev is able to go in there and do the job when he hasn't played for these long stretches? And clearly, he does not do well when he goes long stretches without playing. So it's not a great situation for the Rangers. You feel great about Igor as your number one, but your number two situation, you've got a guy whose confidence has been dwindling for a year or so now, and in my opinion, does not seem to respond well to backup role. We've seen goalies in the past that that can come in after not playing for a long time and do the job and perform well and give their team a chance to win. Georgiev, more often than not recently, has looked just like he is he's out of sorts. He's not there, whether it's a mental thing, a physical thing, a combination of both. He has not been good for the Rangers, and he does not seem to respond well to this starting once every 10, 12 days kind of thing that he's been doing so far this season. So I don't know what the Rangers are going to do. I do believe that they would like to trade him. I don't know if they're going to settle for, I don't know, fifth, sixth round pick. I don't know what you would realistically get for him. I know that what they've asked for him in the past was deemed to be way too much by other teams. Obviously, his trade value has only diminished given his recent play. So they ultimately, if they feel like they can't trust him anymore and and he has a couple more starts like the one that he had on Sunday – they might have to bite the bullet and put him on waivers. And whether it's call Kincaid up or call Huska up, just go in a different direction. I know they'd much rather be able to trade him and get something back for him, but right now the, the chances of that happening and them getting anything of value seem to be pretty slim. So it's not a great situation. You, you feel kind of bad for the guy, but at the same time, if you don't perform and if the team can't trust you in those spot starts every now and then and, and give Igor a breather every now and then so that they don't overwork this guy and potentially get him hurt, well, then they, they will have to consider op- other options, I believe. All right, final question of the week comes from at JB underscore NYR fan who wrote, Vince, will the Rangers only go after Tomas Hurdle if they can get him to sign right away, or if it's a pure rental? JB, that, that's a good question, because some of you might have seen, I wrote a story on Monday. I, I spent some time since the Sammy Blay injury making some calls, talking to different people, whether it be Rangers, around the league, whatever, about what the Rangers were going to do to address the forward depth, because obviously they're without Blay for the rest of the year. Vitaly Kratsov is in Russia. He's going to play the full season in the KHL. That would mean the earliest he could potentially come back is May. And even then, you guys know that I'm skeptical about whether we'll ever see him in a Rangers uniform again. And so, looking at this forward situation right now, the Rangers have Dryden Hunt, as we talked about, playing on the top line or the second line or whatever you want to call it. And there's a clear hole. Clearly, the Rangers are lacking at least one top nine kind of player who would help this team 
be consistent, get to the playoffs, and, and accomplish some of their goals for this season. So basically what I gathered is that they do fully intend to make a trade at some point. They have the assets for it. They're monitoring the market. They've already started making calls. But with that being said, it also seems to me that they are in no rush to do so. They're going to wait. They're going to bide their time. Each passing day, they accrue more cap space, which is part of this. They already have a lot of cap space, but by the time we get close to the trade deadline, they can basically afford any one-year rental that they want. And for now, they are somewhat comfortable, given the way that they're winning and given the way that some of these guys are playing, allowing other guys to get an opportunity. Top of that list is Julian Gauthier. He's been really good in the last three, four, five games. If you look at the Rangers' leaders and shots on goal in that span, he's right at the top. I think he's not only been getting to the net, which we've seen him do before, but getting way more shots off, which has been an issue in the past, and playing a much better all-around game. He has been a fairly relentless presence when it comes to the forecheck. We saw him score a goal last week by creating a turnover on his own and then turning it into a goal. We've seen him play much better defensively. We've seen him throw his body around a lot more. He just looks like an, a much more confident player, a much different player overall. And I know Gerard Gallant is really happy with what he's seeing with Gautier. So if Gautier can continue this, then there's not as much of a rush for the Rangers to go out and get a forward who they can slot into their top nine. Because right now, he's earning his time in that spot. If he doesn't work out, what I was told was the Rangers do at some point want to give Morgan Barron an opportunity. They believe he's next in line. They believe he's sort of proven what he needs to prove with Hartford. And now the next step for him is, is seeing what he can do at the NHL level. There, Not everyone is convinced that this guy will be a top nine regular at the NHL level, but there's really only one way to find out. He's their best forward prospect with Hartford right now. And so I think that if the Gautier thing didn't work out or the Hunt thing doesn't work out or another injury strikes, that there's a a good chance you'll see Barron up here at some point. Some people have asked about Laurie Paiemi. He has been much better for Hartford in the last couple of weeks. His goals are starting to click. I think he had two goals in their last game. So you're starting to see that offense and that shot that, that we've talked about a lot with him in the past showing up in games, which is encouraging. And maybe if he keeps playing really well, the Rangers will have to consider a call up at some point this season. But my understanding with him has been that they really wanted this to be a development year. They wanted him to get a long stretch of time with Hartford and maybe view him as more of a realistic option next season. Of course, if you continue to produce, that can change. So he's a guy to keep your eye on a little bit, but I would look at Gautier and Barron as the guys that are going to get the first crack at it. With all that said... Absolutely, I was told that because you have to anticipate injuries and you have to anticipate certain guys maybe reverting back or performance dips or things along those lines, absolutely the Rangers intend to make a trade. They, they, I would be shocked if they did not acquire some kind of a forward, whether it be a center or a right wing, at some point before the trade deadline. But again, we've got a long way to go until then. The trade deadline is not until March 21st. So they are not going to rush this. They're going to sort of let this thing play out, see what kind of trade opportunities materialize. An important part of this is waiting to see which teams around the league drop out of the playoff race. Because right now it's so early in the season, most teams still feel like they have a shot. There are some that are in obvious rebuilding situations, but most teams still feel like they have a realistic shot. As the months go by, more teams are going to come to the conclusion okay, we're not buyers, we're sellers. We need to get what we can before we risk losing this guy to free agency, which takes me to the final point here. When we talk about a guy like Tomas Hurdle, who you know from the San Jose Sharks, obviously a a top six caliber center, probably would be my preference if I could take anybody who we anticipate maybe being available on the trade market. I feel like he would be the best fit for the Rangers. He would have the most upside. The thing with the Rangers and the position they're in, which I was told by multiple people, they can afford pretty much anyone they want if it's a one-year rental. But if it's a player who's under contract for more than one year, then they have to be really careful because we know their cap situation is going to get very tight beginning next season. So 
they seem, especially if they think that they're in the playoff race and they think they have a realistic shot to get into the playoffs and make a little noise this year, they seem more inclined to maybe chase that one-year rental. Now, if it's, if it's Tomas Hurdle, obviously you would rather have him for more than one year. You would look at him as a guy who you could put in your top six and be a second-line center behind Zabanajad and really help the Rangers get to the next level. But he's going to come with a hefty price tag. So I would think that if they were going to make a move for a guy like him or maybe some of the other names that have been rumored out there, although I will say this, I mentioned this in the story, I think some of the, the names that people have been throwing out there a lot, whether it's Vladimir Tarasenko, Phil Kessel, Riley Smith, the Rangers seem a little lukewarm to me on those guys. I was told that those are not necessarily the guys that they're looking at at the top of their list right now. So take that for what you will. There's always a chance that these things could change. These situations are very fluid. But as far as Hurdle, I don't think that it would be a situation where you make a trade from him and you're you're immediately looking to resign him. I think you would make the trade. You know you can afford him for the rest of this season. And then once you get to the offseason, you're going to have decisions to make. You're going to have to decide what you're going to do with Ryan Strom, whether you're resigning him or not. You're going to have to decide if you can afford somebody more expensive than him, like a hurdle, because hurdle will definitely be more expensive than Strom, in my opinion, or explore other options, whether it be trade, free agency. They're going to have some decisions to make. But I think any trade that they make this season is most likely going to be either a one-year rental type of guy like Hurdle, who they'll let play out the rest of the season and then make decisions from there, or it'll be a low-cost, probably lesser-known name guy, maybe a younger guy who's under contract for multiple years but at a, a palatable average annual value. They cannot afford to take on a guy who, especially a winger, who they know has a big salary beyond this season. That would put them in a really difficult situation as far as the cap is concerned, which is why a guy like Tarasenko, who has two years left on his deal, from what I'm hearing, sounds like that's not happening. It's not really realistic for the Rangers to go after a winger who's making nine-plus million dollars a year or whatever he's making beyond this season. So that's where they stand on that. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. I want to thank everyone again for coming along on the ride, whether you were here for episode one or here for episode 50. I appreciate you. I love you. This would not be the same without you guys. It wouldn't be anything. It would be me talking to myself, quite frankly, without you guys. So I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you so much for being loyal listeners throughout the course of this show. I wish you all a very, very happy Thanksgiving. Eat your hearts out. Eat well. Eat lots of turkey. Eat managot. Whatever you have. I know a lot of the Italians out there know what I'm talking about for that first course. But I hope you guys enjoy it. It's going to be a great week, an exciting week. We'll have plenty of hockey coverage for you, along with, hopefully, a good day of family and friends and eating and fun and all that good stuff. But for now, I'm going to get going. I hope you all have a great week, and I will talk to you next week.